1 Timothy chapter 2, starting up with verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would do the work that's necessary for us. You would grant us wisdom. You would grant us courage to face this hour, guided by your word. Lord, we pray for your work to be done in our hearts and that we grow in our trust and faith in you. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Did you ever think that you would live in a society and within a time period where one of the most controversial questions that you could ask another person is, what is a woman? What is a woman? A popular social commentator recently made a documentary that that filmed him traveling around the world asking certain people that very question, what is a woman, and then, of course, getting their responses. Uh, Almost one year ago, on March 22nd, 2022, the Senate Judiciary Committee questioned current Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson as a part of her nomination process. She was asked by Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee if she could provide a definition for the word woman. Justice Brown Jackson then famously responded, no, I can't. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible knows what a woman is. The Bible knows that there is a difference between women and men. Our society is increasingly trying to to deny that there is any difference between men and women at all, but biblical Christians cannot deny that. Instead, we must affirm the Bible's teaching that God created humanity, both male and female, in his own image, and so we share an equality and value before God as men and women. We must also affirm that there are different roles and responsibilities for men and women in the divine order from creation. The Bible teaches what those different roles are within the church and the home. And I love how 1 Timothy makes this connection between the church and the home, calling the church in chapter 3, verse 15, the household of God. The household of God. And showing that congregations should only entrust 
the leadership of God's household, that is the church, to those men who have been faithful leaders of their own households. While the Bible assumes that we will also know the difference between men and women, it also assumes that we may have a little trouble living out the roles which women and men were designed and called to live out before the Lord. The Bible knows that we are sinful. The Bible teaches we have rebelled against the Lord, and so that has directly affected how we live out our roles as men and women in this world. Rather than men patiently taking the lead to be responsible for their households, far too often our sin leads us to be selfish, and so to demand to have things our way or or we neglect our duty and are passive, which then leaves a, a vacuum of leadership that then must be filled. So wives step in to fill that vacuum because somebody has to. They end up taking the lead in the home. They end up taking the lead in the church where men are passive. So we have before us in the writings of Christ's ambassador, his apostle, the, the Apostle Paul, and, and he is addressing the church and reminding them of their roles in this divine order. He addresses the men in our passage, and he addresses the women. He knows the church, knows the, the, the difference between women and men. He also knows that the readers for all generations will know the difference between women and men. And this paragraph uh, will not uh, be the end of his teaching on the differences uh, in our roles. Uh, it will continue on in the next few chapters. Uh, so although it seems like he's focusing on women in these verses this morning, don't worry. Paul will have a lot to say to the men in the chapters to come. Uh, but we are, we are to know here that what the apostle writes is for the church. He is in fact doing it on behalf of Jesus Christ himself. As it says back in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So, uh, through this passage, men and women in the Lord's household are to faithfully live out their roles in the divine order. That's our main theme that we're seeing from this passage this morning. Men and women in the Lord's household are to faithfully live out their roles in the divine order. So Paul addresses men first in verse 8. Uh, he then addresses women directly beginning in verse 9, and I've divided up the paragraph under four headings. Uh, first from verse 8, men of prayer, not pugilism. Then verses 9 and 10, women adorned with godliness, not gaudiness. Uh, third, the big section, verses 11 through 14, women in submission to the divine order. And finally, uh, lastly, verse 15, women and the Lord's hope-filled word. So let's begin there in verse 8. Men of prayer, not pugilism. Pugilism means boxing or fighting with one's, one's hands. We are to be men of prayer, not of pugilism. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, prayer is incredibly important to the Lord Jesus, and so Paul calls the men within the church to pray, to lift their hands up and pray. Uh, if you recall, 
uh, as we work through the Gospel of Luke, Sunday by Sunday, uh, for the past couple of years, Luke often recorded Jesus in the midst of his earthly ministry, taking time to pray. Jesus would rise up early in the morning before sunrise and go out to a solitary place in order to pray. Uh, there was uh, the, the time in Luke chapter 6 where, where, where Jesus went out to the mountain, it says, to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Then when the morning came, Jesus called 12 men out of all of his disciples, all of those who were following him, to be his apostles. And we also know of the Lord Jesus' most famous prayer, um, or famous, most famous time of prayer anyway, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, where he also clearly stated the importance of prayer for the other disciples there. He said, pray that you may not fall into temptation. So prayer is incredibly important to the Lord Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see his apostle here calling Christian men to be men of prayer. Paul's also closing his call for the church to pray that he began back in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm going to just peek back there at verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Then he went on to show uh, his heart for why the church must be praying and what we are to be praying for, verses 2 through 4, for kings and all who are in high, high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So when you consider uh, so many rulers of the nations of this world who at this time, uh, including our own president, have no regard or sympathy for Bible-believing Christians living out their faith, trying to call others to believe and follow Jesus, it's easy to see how utterly dependent upon God we are to do a work in their hearts. So therefore, we must pray. We are also completely dependent upon God for his grace for anyone to hear the gospel message and to believe what they hear. God must do a miraculous work in the hearts of hardened sinners in order for them to receive the gospel as good news and then repent and grasp hold of Christ by faith. And so here in verse 8, Christian men are called to take the lead in praying. We are not to think that we are self-sufficient, that we can do this on our own. We are not to think we don't need any help. Men must recognize our great need for God and his grace. We must cast our pride away from us. We must humble ourselves and seek the Lord in prayer. Christian men are to be known for being men who pray rather than men who are known for their anger and quarreling. And this gets back to Paul's concern in, in this letter for proper Christian behavior. He is concerned that we become people of godliness, living out the truth of the gospel. And so specifically for men, Paul's calling us to be much more known for raising our hands in prayer rather than raising them in fists to fight and quarrel with others. We aren't to be known as pugilists, but prayer warriors. So brothers... 
Are you known as a man of prayer? Are you taking the lead in your home? Are you taking the lead here in church to pray? Sadly, I've been in a lot of homes, um, homes of family members, uh, homes of people in the churches that I've been a part of, where the hosts are about to serve a meal. So we're gathered together for this meal. Everything is ready. All the food is well prepared. The, the, the fragrance of the food is, is filling the room. We're all eager uh, to dive in and to enjoy this meal. The table has been set. All the dishes are, are laid out, ready for us. And everyone is gathered around, and there is that moment. That moment. That awkward moment where we're all expecting someone to, to lead in prayer. But the man of the house doesn't do anything. He just stands back, waits passively for someone else to say something. And so what usually happens is the, the woman of the house, the wife, will speak up and, and offer the prayer. Or she'll, she'll look at me if I'm there and say, Pastor, Pastor, do you, you lead us in prayer? So, so, so men, the Lord is calling you to take the lead. Take the lead. Not just in those situations in the home, but in the church as well. Or in whatever context you're in, where, where, where prayer is necessary. Lead your family. Lead your wife. Lead others in the church to pray. Uh, secondly, verses 9 and 10. Women, women adorned with godliness, not gaudiness. Women adorned with godliness, not gaudiness. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul addresses women here in verse 9, and he's making a, a contrast. He's making a contrast here. He's making a point to show what Christian women are to be known for, that is, women who trust in the Lord Jesus as their, uh, for their salvation and, 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 and then pursue the Lord Jesus as their greatest treasure. They are to be more known for their godliness, which will be primarily seen in their good works, what they do to serve the Lord, how, how they show their love and devotion to the Lord as their treasure. That's what they are to be, to be most known for. Now, don't get hung up on the specifics that Paul seems to be forbidding here for women's dress. We could spend hours working through the legalities of this list. You know, well, uh, if Paul, if, if, if a woman wears her hair up in a bun, would, would, would that be considered braided? Um, you know, what, what kind of hairstyles are allowed here? What about a ponytail? Um, curls? Is that allowed? What's allowed and, and, and what isn't here, Paul? I mean, what? Would a wedding ring with a gold band be allowed? What if the wedding, wedding ring had a pearl on it also? You know, does a woman have to remove her wedding ring in order to go to church? And how about how pricey do women's clothes have to be to be considered costly attire? You know, where do you draw the line on these things, Paul? Of course, we like to draw lines, right? We like to draw lines about these things. Uh, our tendency is to get legalistic. Um, but the specifics here of what a woman wears on the outside are not the main concern. The main concern is what the condition of the woman's heart is on the inside. We see here that there was a strong temptation among women 
in the culture of the first century Roman Empire to attract attention to themselves by how they looked, by how they dressed, by what they wore. And it seems there was a major focus on their hairstyles, their jewelry, you know, made of precious metals and, and the latest fashions and, and the top brands of clothing. Of course, in our society, you know, we, we, we've progressed from all that now uh, to the point where we are no longer concerned about how we look. That's not a concern for us, right? Oh my, it's pretty incredible how, how little things have changed over the generations. You know, this, this kind of thing is just as much of a temptation now as it was in the first century. We are far more concerned about how we look on the outside than the condition of our hearts on the inside. And Paul's calling the women in the church to not follow the world in this. He's calling them to be set apart, to live lives of godliness, to be much more concerned about how much they know Jesus and how they are obeying his word rather than how much they know the latest fashion trends and how they are following the current styles of their culture. And we see much the same calling for women in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. If you want to turn there quickly, uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter is making much the same contrast here. He says there, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So again, he's not saying that Christian women are to make sure that they look as plain as possible. He's not saying to never wear makeup, to never try to look nice. The Bible is calling uh, here, women, he's, the Bible's not calling women here to just let themselves go. The point is, Christian women are to be known for who they are on the inside. Let your adorning be not external, but internal. The condition of your heart. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's the point. On Thursday, I paid a visit to our dear sister, Pauline Lutman, at the Stanton Health Center, and it was her birthday. She turned 97 years old, and you can imagine, at 97 years old, Pauline was not dressed in the finest fashions of the day. Her hair did not match any of the most striking hairstyles that you might see in Glamour magazine. I did not notice any sparkling jewelry that she was displaying on her. Outwardly, Paul, uh, Pauline has, has looked better in her life. But as I sat down and visited with her, there was something about Pauline that really stood out to me. She kept talking about how grateful she was that the Lord had saved her from her sins. And she lamented with me for all those who are much younger than her who don't know Jesus, who are living their lives in sin, unconcerned for the judgment that is to come. She told me how she prays for me and my family regularly. She told me she also witnesses to the nurses and aides that come in to help her. She told me what, what she says to them with tears 
coming down her face. At 97 years old, much of Pauline's outward beauty has fallen away, but there is an inward beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit of trust and love that is imperishable within her. That is what Christian women are called to be known for. That is Paul's concern in this passage. Thirdly, women in submission to the divine order. Women in submission to the divine order, verses 11 through 14. Now, in these verses here, we are getting more into the divine order of men and women, how women are to relate with men within the church, particularly in the gathering of the church. Again, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul will refer to the church as the household of God, and the Lord desires his household to resemble Christian households. In the Christian home, the husband is to be in the role of leadership, loving his wife as Christ loved the church, laying down his self-interests as Christ laid down his life for the good of the church. The wife then is to submit to her husband as the church submits to, to Christ. You can read about those commands in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, or Colossians 3, 18 and 19, or also what, what we just looked at in, in 1 Peter 3. But here, we are given instructions for the roles of women and men within the church. This teaching will continue into chapter 3, but what we see here is that, like in the home, Christian men are to be the ones filling the roles of leadership within the church, within the household of God, primarily in the roles of teaching the gathered church and exercising authority. Women are encouraged to exercise their gifts for ministry in all other areas of service, and there are a lot of other areas of service. The main thing we are to see here in these verses, let's just look at this a little bit more closely. So in verse 11, women are called to learn. Women are called to learn. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now this was a a very countercultural, even radical statement for the Apostle Paul to make. That is, women are to learn. In that society, women were not allowed in schools. And unless they were very wealthy, they were completely uneducated. And here the Lord's Apostle calls for women to be taught to to learn the doctrines of the faith. Uh, Then continuing on with what we just heard in the previous two verses, women were called to learn with the right heart. That is, quietly with an attitude of submission. Simply there to learn with a humble teachable spirit. This is exactly how men must seek to learn as well. That is in humility. Then in verse 12, we're given a prohibition here in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Some challenge what this verse says by arguing it was just Paul saying that he did not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over men in the church. It wasn't the Lord's prohibition, it was just Paul's. But we need to remember, Paul is the Lord's apostle. The Lord Jesus called him to be his apostle, to be his messenger, to be his ambassador to the churches. So when Paul writes to the churches as the Lord's apostle, which he is here, he is speaking for the Lord. And within the gathered church context, then the apostle says women are not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. These are are two separate things, but yet are very closely related. 
Now, Paul is not prohibiting women to teach in any capacity. We, we, we know this because in Titus chapter 2, Paul commands women to teach other women. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he praises Timothy's mother and grandmother for teaching him the scriptures as he grew up under their care. And back in Acts 18, verse 26, we also see the wife and husband, that is Priscilla and Aquila, take the young evangelist Apollos aside and and instruct him in the way of God more accurately, it says. Apollos was an eloquent preacher, but he just needed a little more instruction. And the Bible tells us both Priscilla and Aquila taught him, but not before the gathered church. They, They took him aside and instructed him privately. So women are encouraged to teach the faith to others in the church and in the home. And and we know believing women have faithfully done this throughout the history of the church. I was taught by many faithful, godly women growing up in my church, in Sunday school, and in youth group, as well as by my own mother. I've also heard godly women speak in conferences and, and seminars on different subjects related to the Christian faith and have benefited immensely from their teaching. So we know that this prohibition has nothing to do with competency, as if men are more competent to teach than women or are smarter than women. I mean, we all know that's not true. Husbands definitely know that that isn't true. It's not about competency. It's about God's created order for men and women in the home and in the church to be displayed to the world. The teaching role within the gathered church is an authoritative role. When the church is gathered, as it is here, the one standing before the congregation, proclaiming and explaining what the scriptures are saying, is exercising authority. And that role is reserved for men. So in the church, as we practice it, men are to fill the roles of pastor and elder because those are the roles of authority over the gathered church. Now, don't get hung up on how verse 12 ends here. It says, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, this is just continuing again with this humble, teachable, submissive attitude that women are called to have in these verses. It's the same word that Paul used earlier. If you want to look back at verse 2 of chapter 2, where he says there, for, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. The same word. Paul is using down here in verse 12. So it's not about being silent. It's about humility. It's about a gentle demeanor that one has while they're learning. And then in verses 13 and 14, they they lay out the foundation for these roles for men and women within the church. We are to notice that Paul doesn't point back to the 12 apostles, for example, all, all being men. Although that would have been relevant to this discussion. Nor does he point out that in the old covenant worship, that the office of priest could only be occupied by men. What Paul does is he goes all the way back to creation, prior to the fall, when the curse of sin came upon the world. He goes before that, to creation. The reason why men are to be the ones in the positions of authority in the church rather than women is, verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So in the order of creation, the man was created first, 
than the woman. Both, of course, are made in the image of God. Man and woman are therefore equal in dignity and worth before God. But in God's order, the man was created first and the Lord gave him the responsibility to rule over his creation. He also gave the man the law, commanding him that he was not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The woman then was created as a helper for the man after the Lord gave the law to the man. So Adam had the responsibility to instruct Eve, to instruct his wife regarding the, the, the law here. But in Genesis 3, we find Satan, in the form of the serpent, approach the woman and deceives her into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the fall of humanity, God's creation order was deliberately disrupted by Satan, by his going directly to the woman and bypassing the man. And then we know the woman sinned and instructed the man to do, do the same. Adam, the man, failed in protecting the garden from Satan and failed in protecting his wife from Satan's influence. He then failed by following the woman into sin. As Paul says, he wasn't deceived. That is, he knew full well what he was doing. He deliberately rebelled against God's authority, believing that he knew better than God. So in the church, God is renewing humanity in Christ his Son. And in, and in this renewed humanity, the creation order is to be restored. This is why men are called to lead in the position of authority and why women are called to learn with all submissiveness. This might seem like a difficult word for us to hear in the midst of our culture. I know that it is definitely controversial. Uh, in today's world, only genuine Bible-believing churches are the ones submitting to this biblical divine order for men and women in the church. But, but, but I guess we, we shouldn't be surprised about that. I mean, it was the very point of attack by the enemy back in the garden at the beginning of the fall of man, and it is still the point of attack by the enemy today, disrupting God's order. But we are not left without hope. We come to verse 15. Women in the Lord's hope-filled word, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the Lord has given women one particular role which men cannot fill. Despite what you might hear from liberal media and activists today, including many politicians and Supreme Court justices, only women can bear children. Only women can give birth and nurse children. Only women. And because of sin, and sin's curse upon women, childbearing is filled with great struggle, with pain, heartache, and sometimes infinite or intense sadness. And yet God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the salvation of the world would come through childbearing. For the seed of the woman would be the one who would ultimately defeat Satan. 
In Genesis 12, the Lord then set his plan for our salvation into motion by promising Abraham that one of his offspring would ultimately bring blessing to all the families of the world, which, of course, depended upon his wife Sarah bearing a child, which she had not been able to do for the first 80 years of her life. So Abraham's wife giving birth to a child was the sign of the Lord's promise of redemption for all the families of the world. And then many, many generations later, a descendant of Abraham and of his son Isaac, a young woman named Mary, bore a son whose name was Jesus, who is the Son of God and the one who came to save us from our sins. So the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah came through the son of Mary, the son that, that Mary bore and gave birth to. So what a privilege, what a privilege the Lord has given to women. Salvation would not have happened without women who feared the Lord, who trusted in his promise, who willingly submitted to the role that the Lord gave them in bearing children. And verse 15 is telling Christian women and us to continue in that way. Continue in that way. Continue. It's not saying that women, that, that women will only be saved if they bear children. God knows that not every woman will do that. What it is saying to women is to continue, continue to humbly follow the Lord's divine role for you, whether that be bearing and raising children, serving the Lord as a single woman, seeking to serve other people quietly, you know, uh, serving them without drawing attention to, to, to yourself, or, or to make disciples of others in the countless ways that women serve within the context of the local church, which, of course, every church depends upon in order to glorify God together. So follow the Lord in faith, follow him in love and holiness and self-control, which, of course, is the adornment of godliness that has that imperishable beauty. And that will reveal that you will be saved, that you will you also help lead others to salvation in Christ as well. That is hope-filled word for us as we close this message. And as we transition to the table this morning, I want the hope-filled words of Christ to be on our hearts and our minds. I'd ask the men to come forward who will help to serve us. The hope-filled words of Christ, that he has not left us in our sin, that he has not forsaken us, even though we deserved to be forsaken, to be condemned. Our Lord Christ came, suffered, died, shed his blood, so that the wrath of God for our sins could be satisfied, could be poured out on Christ, his Son. And we put our hope and faith in him. We stand before God and we say, it's not in us. We are insufficient. We can't do it. It's all you. We need you. We humbly submit ourselves to you, to your word, to your promise, to our Lord Jesus. I'll read our instructions here. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, uh, chapter 11. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He also gives us a warning. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as we come to the table, as we come to the bread and the cup this morning, we are all called to examine ourselves. And what are we to examine ourselves for? We are to examine ourselves for faith and repentance. Are we trusting in the word of the Lord? That we are sinners. That the only hope for our salvation is through Christ Jesus alone. That he sent for us and Christ died for us, absorbing the punishment for us. And that he rose again from the dead, showing forth that he is the Lord, the Savior, that we are to come to. To be saved by. Is that our testimony? Is that our story? If that's not our story, well then the table is, is not for us. We are to let the bread and the cup pass by us. But I would encourage you, if that's not your story, in these moments, to think about that story. Think about the gospel. Think about whether or not you need to come before God and to repent and admit your sins in order to receive his grace and forgiveness in Christ. That's the men to come forward now, and we'll begin by passing out the bread. The men will pass out uh, the bread to you. We ask you just to hold on to the bread until all of us have been served, and we'll partake of the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time, this opportunity that you have given us, that you have prescribed for us, that we may dwell on the hope of the gospel. As we come to the table, we recognize our failings, our sins. We are not the people who we ought to be, but we trust in the great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember him and glorify him in the eating of this meal. In the name of Jesus, pray. Amen.